Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Thank you for joining me for another installment on the Cold Case Road Trip. If this is your first time listening to Murder Bucket, you might not know what the Cold Case Road Trip is. Let me explain. Over the course of 30 episodes, we will be traveling to two different locations and covering a cold case. Those locations will consist of all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and five inhabited territories. Now, last week I told you that we had made it to the halfway mark. But guys, I lied. I'm really bad at math, and we're not there yet. But almost. Next week's episode will actually be our halfway mark. I promise this time. Let's go ahead and move right on into our week-slash-weekend recap. Mine was just a little bit quiet. On Saturday, I went out with one of my friends from work to help her look at some furniture because she just moved into a new place. Sunday, we went to church, and then I played softball. Nothing too exciting. Let's see what you guys got up to on Twitter and Instagram. Crime and Compulsion podcast shared a picture with us that shows that they got a new haircut, and I have to tell you, it looks absolutely incredible. Straight Up Evil podcast said that they went to a friend's house for a fire and s'mores, and that it was the perfect summer night. Next time, I would love to be invited. S'mores are my favorite treat. Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast said that they've been working, but... They get to have a long weekend coming up, and they're looking forward to it. I also get to have a long weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. Gary C. said they got their second vaccination, and they slept for about 14 hours. And that does sound like pure bliss. I am very proud of you, Gary C., for getting your vaccination. Now, don't get me wrong. If you don't want to get it, That is 100% up to you, but in my opinion, I think it's a good idea. Family Plot Podcast said that they visited Fort Osage. I'm not 100% sure that I'm saying that correctly, which is going to be about their show this upcoming week. And then Catherine at Straight Talking Podcast said the good thing was they got bubble tea The sun was shining, and they went to a barbecue and played Mass Effect. The bad thing is that they've been having some trouble maintaining their mood level, a pet bird pooped on them, and their lockdown got extended. Now, from what I've seen of my husband playing Mass Effect, it does look very intriguing. I would love to be invited to a barbecue. Hint, hint, wink, wink. I've never tried bubble tea. And I just want to give you an over-the-podcast air hug because I understand how hard it is to maintain that mood level. And I am really sorry that your lockdown got extended. 
Round Here podcast said they've got to go on a road trip with their sisters to their favorite place and take some really cool pictures of interesting things. But the bad thing is, is that they're totally unmotivated to do anything now that they're home. I think you need to convince my brother to take me on a road trip. Let's see what was said on Instagram. I believe we only had one person that said something, and that was Mila243, that they got to celebrate their dad's birthday over the weekend. Happy birthday, dad. And now we're going to move right on into tonight's episode. Stop 25, Tennessee. On April 29th, 2003, 13-year-old Tabitha Tudors was woken up by her father, Bo, at around 7 a.m. just before he left for work. Bo was a local truck driver, and her mom, Deborah, was a cafeteria worker at a local elementary school. Tabitha was supposed to catch the bus at 8 a.m. near 14th and Boscobel Street in Nashville, Tennessee. Witnesses state that they saw her walk toward the bus stop while reading a book. Tabitha never got on the bus and never arrived at Bailey Middle School. When she didn't come home that evening, her parents contacted the school. They told her that she was absent that day. Her parents then reported her missing at around 6 p.m. that same evening. Tabitha was a member of the Eastland Baptist Church's choir and regularly volunteered at spaghetti dinners. Her parents described her as an innocent girl who preferred to stay at home with her family instead of going out. She was a straight-A student and had a perfect attendance record. She was the youngest of three children, older brother Kevin and older sister Jamie. Jamie and her two children were temporarily living at the home at the time of her disappearance. Within two hours of the missing persons report, officers had conducted an extensive search of the family's neighborhood. They went as far as Shelby Park and LP Field, which were over two miles away. Local markets and empty buildings were also searched. A boy who was waiting at the bus stop told police that he saw Tabitha get into a red car with a strange man. He described this man as a mid-30s African-American male wearing a baseball hat. Tracker dogs corroborated the boy's story when they were able to trace her scent along the route. There were also several other reports that claimed Tabitha's sister's ex-boyfriend matched a description of the driver. He drove a red car and knew exactly where Tabitha took the bus every morning. The police have been unable to connect him to her disappearance. Her family believes that she would never willingly get into a car with anyone other than a family member. At first, police stated that Tabitha was a runaway since they were unable to find any evidence in regards to an abduction. But later, they decided that foul play was involved because she left all of her personal possessions, such as her clothes, makeup, house keys, and money, at home. Police conducted a search of her room and found a piece of paper written by Tabitha. It was her initials and someone else's. According to her family, she didn't have a boyfriend, so authorities were unable to identify the other initials. 
They also found a business card containing Tabitha's name, address, phone number, and the notations Call Me and Sexy Girl written on them. Just two weeks after her disappearance, a husband and wife were arrested for allegedly raping a minor. They lived just a few houses down from the Tudors. There was also a registered sex offender that was arrested in June of 2003 after luring a young boy onto his motorcycle, then driving him to a secluded location and attempting to sexually assault him. The boy managed to escape unharmed. He also attended Bailey Middle School with Tabitha. That guy is now serving time for the attempted assault on the little boy and for raping a woman he kidnapped from the Greyhound bus station. Police then questioned another shady neighbor who spent more than a decade in prison for sexually assaulting his four daughters. One of their family members warned the tutors that he might be involved in Tabitha's disappearance. In 2008, the Tennessee Sex Offender Registry showed that he still resided just a mile away from the Tudor home. For nearly a year, neighbors delivered the family hot meals. A steady stream of friends and family visited them to bring them a bit of comfort. In August of 2003, 11-year-old Heaven Ross disappeared while on the way to school in Northport, Alabama. Her remains were found three years after her disappearance, and her murder remains unsolved. Authorities believe there is a connection between the girls' cases even though there was a large distance between Nashville and Northport. In October of 2003, just six months after her disappearance, a trucker called in a tip stating that they saw Tabitha in Linton, Indiana. She looked anxious and afraid and was accompanied by a man and another teenage girl. His tip was backed up by a hotel clerk in Linton who also saw them. Unfortunately, the two reports have not been substantiated. Police tried to look into the computer that Tabitha used at the local library, but that turned up no information pertaining to her disappearance. In an article on NashvilleScene.com, East Precinct Commander Robert Nash says that failing to issue an Amber Alert and inexplicably clinging to the notion that Tabitha was a runaway, the department lost precious time in the early stages of the case. Robert says that even though the chances of cracking this case are diminishing, he is quick to say that sometimes all it takes is just one break, a single phone call. He is quoted saying, it's certainly one of those cases that haunts the community and haunts this police department. I think we all very much would like to see this case solved and see Tabitha come home. Tabitha's loved ones have continued their search for answers. They formed a group of volunteers called Team Tabitha. They combed through alleyways, abandoned homes, and parks in East Nashville looking for any sign. They knock on doors asking if anyone has seen her and pray that the next door might hold answers. They continue to hang up missing person posters at grocery stores, gas stations, and on telephone poles. But after the years... The dozens of volunteers have slowly dwindled to just a handful of relatives and friends who refuse to give up hope. In 2008, on what would have been Tabitha's 15th birthday, family and friends gathered at the family home. 
Reverend Sam Jones, a family acquaintance, began to explain that Tabitha means gazelle, which was appropriate for her because of her limitless energy. He then read a few verses from the Bible and ended his statement with, If she's not alive on earth, she's alive in the arms of the Lord. Tabitha's mother stated on NashvilleScene.com, Out of the whole five years that this kid has been gone, not a day has gone by that her name is not mentioned. I have her picture sitting here on this table, right next to where I sit, and I talk to that picture. In the years since her disappearance, the family took out their landline because they got prank calls on a daily basis. Many of those calls would claim to be Tabitha and beg for her dad to come get her. In the same article, a neighbor is quoted saying, Thinking back, I wish we would have done more. I wish we could have done something to bring her home, but at least we were able to take care of them for a little bit. It's just a mystery to me what happened to that child. To think she wasn't safe even to walk to the bus stop. Poor little Tabitha. I don't know. I just don't know. In an article on NewsChannel5.com, Detective Matthew Filter says that over the years, there have been many leads that have come in, and while they seem promising, they've all led to dead ends. He states, In a way, we hold out hope that she is still alive, that perhaps she was abducted and is the victim of human trafficking. But at the same time, we have nothing that necessarily points to that, and there's nothing that can let us confirm that she's still alive or dead. It's still an active investigation, even after 18 years. There's just a lot going on with it all the time. In the years following Tabitha's disappearance, the family desperately shared their daughter's story with several daytime talk shows, hoping someone might catch the segment and know something. They poured their hearts out on the Montel Williams show, only to have their hearts shattered by a psychic who told them that their little girl was no longer alive. That very same psychic told another family member the same news, yet their child was found alive in 2007. In 2020, detectives searched a rural part of Hickman County after receiving a tip. Records showed that the property was once tied to a man that was strongly considered a person of interest. After just two days, they were unable to definitively confirm that she was on this property. Tabitha was last seen wearing a light blue shirt, mud jeans, and Reebok sneakers. Her case remains open and active. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Tabitha Tudors, you were asked to contact the Nashville Metro Police or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This week's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Are you getting bored with the same old games on your phone and looking for something new? Let me tell you about this new game that I've been playing that you have to check out. It's called Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends is a new puzzle game that has literally thousands of levels to play and cute characters to collect. I've unlocked 17 out of 202 characters and my current favorite is Jojo. She's a caterpillar inside her cocoon waiting to become a beautiful butterfly. Each time you evolve the characters, 
They get new abilities and their look changes. I can't wait to see JoJo's colors once I evolve her. I find myself playing Best Fiends during lunch at work and while I'm laying in bed, winding down after a long day. I've made it to level 190 in the Omnius Ocean and can see an octopus guarding his shipwreck in the distance. I can't wait to see what else this game has in store. This game has something new every single day, such as levels, events, and challenges to keep you entertained. It also challenges your brain, but is casual enough that it doesn't stress you out, which is really great right now. Anyone can play. It's made for adults, but it's bright, colorful, fun, really approachable, and is a nice breather from the heavy true crime world. So, join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And we're back with our regularly scheduled program. Stop 26. Ohio. 19-year-old Ronald Taman Jr. was a sophomore at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio in 1953. Ronald played the string bass in the university dance band called the Campus Owls. He was a member of the Delta Tai Delta fraternity, and he wrestled on the school's wrestling team. On the evening of April 19th, he requested new bedsheets from the hall manager because someone had played a prank on him and put a dead fish in his bed. At around 8.30, Ronald heard something outside that upset him, so he decided to go investigate. He never returned. When his roommates came back to their room at around 10 or 10.30 that evening, they noticed that the lights were still on in his room and the radio was playing. But Ronald wasn't there. His coat, wallet, and keys were, and there was also a book open on his desk. His 1938 Chevrolet sedan was still sitting in the school parking lot with his bass fiddle in the back seat. Everyone assumed he had spent the evening at the fraternity house, but when he failed to return the next day, his roommates filed a missing persons report. On April 25th, more than 400 students, including the Air Force ROTC and fraternity members, did an extensive search around Fisher Hall. The next day, 3,000 acres within Houston Woods a state-owned forest that is now a state park, was searched by prisoners from Ohio's honor camp. The Miami student reported that a five-state alarm was issued on April 28th. There was an investigation of all rail, bus, and plane terminals that brought to light no clues as to Ronald's whereabouts. Carl Knox, who is the dean of men at Miami, was tasked to oversee the university's investigation. Oscar Decker, who is the new police chief for Oxford Police Department, led their investigation. Butler County Sheriff's Office and the Ohio State Highway Patrol also became involved in the investigation. The FBI stepped in after Ronald's mother contacted the Cleveland office to report her son missing and request that a notice be placed in their missing persons file. 
Their involvement escalated quickly because Ronald violated the Selective Service Act when he was classified as eligible for military service after not renewing his student deferment and therefore not showing up for his physical and not reporting for duty on August 25th. A woman that lived outside of Oxford told police that a young man had come to her door at 11 p.m. that evening and asked what town he was in. She then claimed that he asked for directions to a bus stop and left. When police investigated, they learned that the bus line has suspended its midnight run. This woman stated that the young man who came to her door was disheveled, dirty, and appeared upset and confused. According to the Butler County Coroner's Office in Hamilton, Ohio, Ronald had visited them just five months prior to his disappearance and asked for a test to have his blood type. The coroner told police that this was the only request that he has ever gotten in 35 years of practice. No one is sure why Ronald wanted the test done and why he didn't just go to a local physician. Ronald's parents last saw him at their home in Maple Heights, Ohio, a week before his disappearance, and they told investigators that he didn't appear to be troubled by anything at the time. Fisher Hall was torn down in the summer of 1978, and the rubble was searched for any signs of Ronald's remains or evidence, but nothing was found. In 2008, a Butler County detective was contacted by another detective in Walker County, Georgia, because he was working on solving a cold case murder that occurred in June of 1953. The body was considered a John Doe, and with a similar height and weight, this body was thought to have belonged to Ronald. Marcia, who was Ronald's sister, provided a DNA sample for comparison. Unfortunately, the DNA wasn't a match. In 2010, Miami University alumnus Jennifer Wigner began to research Ronald's case and spent nine years trying to solve it. She doesn't believe he died at the time of his disappearance, but believes that he lived well into his 60s. She bases this theory on the fact that the FBI discarded Ronald's fingerprints in 2002. There is a regulation that allows them to destroy someone's fingerprints seven years after a person's death. Jennifer currently runs RonaldTaman.com, where a good amount of my information came for tonight's episode. It has extensive information regarding who Ronald was, the day of his disappearance, the investigation, and her theories. Jennifer interviewed Dr. Philip Shriver, who was Miami University's president from 1965 to 1981. Even though he arrived at Miami 12 years after Ronald disappeared, he quickly became an aficionado about Ronald's case. On Halloween each year, he would give a talk about his case, which kept the story alive. During their interview, Dr. Phillip provided Jennifer with two additional people that she could talk to. She went on to speak with fraternity members, campus OWL members, Fisher Hall residents, high school friends, family, and people who were knowledgeable about subjects that pertain to her research. In a post written on April 19th of 2019, Jennifer shares what she believes happened to Ronald. His psychology professor, St. Clair Switzer, 
was questioned by investigators regarding Ronald being in his class. Instead of the usual response of, he wasn't enrolled in my class at the time he disappeared, St. Clair is quoted saying, I have no particular memory of him. I don't really have anything more to say. Obviously, like most of us, Jennifer found this response very odd. In the article, she states that it did occur to her that the class might have been too big for him to notice him. She then spoke with Miami's archivist Jackie Johnson, who told her that the maximum student load for that room was roughly 45 students. She goes on to state that she believes St. Clair worked as a consultant for the CIA's artichoke program. This was a secret program that aimed to control people's thoughts and behaviors with drugs, hypnosis, and other means. She theorizes that the psychology department might have been conducting the hypnosis studies for the program during the 1952-1953 academic year. St. Clair might have targeted Ronald and made him an experimental subject for the possible reason that Ronald could easily be hypnotized. I'll share a link to her website in the show notes so that if you are interested, you could read more of the articles that she has written. She is also currently writing a book. There is no description of what Ronald was last seen wearing at the time of his disappearance. He was roughly 5 foot 10 and weighed 175 pounds. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Ronald Taman, you were encouraged to contact the Oxford Police Department. And that concludes tonight's episode. Please enjoy this promo from my friend at Octoberpod. I'm Edward October, and I'm here at the Octoberpod Ranch in the Great Smoky Mountains. Almost every night here, there's a ghost story party around the campfire. In my family... We believe that scary stories are best told around a roaring fire with a bottle of wine. That's why bold individualists everywhere choose Octoberpod for their retro horror thrills. Our stories are so good because they're told with such care. Understated, moody, and above all, chilling. Why don't you join us for retro horror of impeccable taste? Choose Octoberpod. Find us on YouTube or at OctoberPodVHS.com. OctoberPod. Retro horror for bold individualists. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.